along Highway 120 for eight miles with wait times exceeding four hours. Yosemite National Park is jam-packed with visitors this year and it's causing a lot of problems. For Saturday, July 1st, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll also hear the latest from France, where the police killing of a teenager has sparked national demonstrations and riots. And Russia, where a week ago it looked like Vladimir Putin was facing down a possible revolt. What happens next? I like to compare what happened to like a glitch in the matrix that reveals that there is a matrix, right? And we saw that glitch in Russia. And ahead of Independence Day, why are Americans so drawn to competitive eating contests? I had my tonsils out last September, so there's a lot more space in terms of just like airway ability. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. CIA Director William Burns recently visited Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, for secret talks with President Volodymyr Zelensky, that according to a U.S. official. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the focus was on Ukraine's current offensive against Russian forces. The U.S. official, speaking on condition of anonymity, said Burns visited Ukraine before last weekend's brief internal uprising in Russia, but did not specify the exact date. The talk centered on Ukraine's offensive, which was launched nearly a month ago with the aim of driving Russian troops out of their strongholds in eastern and southern Ukraine. The Ukrainian effort has been progressing slowly, with heavy casualties reported on both sides. Burns met with President Zelensky, as well as Ukrainian intelligence officials, during his stop. He's been a regular visitor to Ukraine, reflecting the close intelligence partnership that has developed between the two countries. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. The Supreme Court has wrapped up its current term with a dramatic series of opinions. But as NPR's Nina Totenberg reports, the strong dissents from the court's liberals provoked some unusual words from Chief Justice Roberts. Roberts' majority opinion in the student loan case ended with a veiled message for the public and his colleagues. It has become a disturbing feature of some recent dissenting opinions to criticize opinions they disagree with as going beyond the proper role of the judiciary. Reasonable minds may disagree, he wrote, but do not mistake these heartfelt disagreements for disparagement. Justice Kagan, author of the dissenting opinion in the case, shot back, I do not at all disparage those who disagree, and there is surely nothing personal in the dispute here. But justices throughout history have raised the alarms when the court has overreached. It would have been disturbing and indeed damaging if they had not. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A new immigration law took effect in Florida today, setting new criminal penalties directed at undocumented people and those who help them. Danielle Pryor from member station WMFE has more. The law will make it illegal to transport or shelter undocumented people. It'll also increase fines for businesses that employ undocumented workers and require health professionals to ask about a person's immigration status. Laudi Campo of the Hispanic Federation of Florida in Orlando says families are terrified. And we're getting calls from families um, with small kids saying, Dad, Mom, are you gonna are we gonna be separated? Those are questions that they're getting from 12, 13 year old kids. The League of United Latin American Citizens has issued a travel advisory warning Latinos about the risks of traveling to Florida. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9. In Sierra Leone. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. According to a police report, Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara was driving with a revoked license when she crashed into a house late yesterday afternoon in Jamaica Plain. The police report also said her car was unregistered and had an expired inspection sticker. Her son was treated for injuries at Boston Children's Hospital. Lara will reportedly be summoned to West Roxbury District Court. Boston police are investigating a deadly shooting. One man was killed and a second man suffered non-life-threatening injuries shortly after midnight on McGreevy Way in Roxbury. No names were released. Boston classrooms used for summer school will now be air-conditioned. The district paid for nearly 4,000 AC units with $7 million of federal relief money. Officials say the installation was completed this past week. The Massachusetts Teachers Association is calling the Supreme Court ruling striking down the student loan forgiveness plan a blow to social and racial justice. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the group links high levels of student debt with the nation's current educator shortage. You need a bachelor's degree to get an initial teaching license in Massachusetts, but that license is only good for five years. After that, educators must qualify for a professional license, which requires a master's. For Chelsea first grade teacher Kyle McGee, that degree will require her family to take on even more student debt than they're already carrying. The price of the schooling that's required is really difficult, and I wish that there was like more laid out plans for how to avoid this kind of debt. McGee says the forgiveness program would have significantly reduced her husband's $50,000 student loan debt, which would have made it easier for her family to afford her master's degree. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. In the forecast, an air quality alert remains in effect until midnight. Hazy skies tonight, mid-60s overnight. And tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, temps in the low 80s. Right now in Boston, it is 76 degrees. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The western Paris suburb of Nanterre is in mourning. Hundreds gathered this afternoon to pay their final respects to the 17-year-old boy who was fatally shot by a police officer earlier this week after being stopped for running a red light. The incident has struck an uneasy chord with people across France, and it's led to widespread protests and unrest. But for those living in Nanterre, the tragedy feels especially personal. Reporter Rebecca Rossman is in Nanterre and has been following today's memorial service. Rebecca, welcome to All Things Considered. Hi. How would you describe today's events? I would say today was quiet, but I would also say that there was a lot of tension. There were no police present. You had these mediators, sort of a local security hired by the town that act as liaisons between the community and local government. And they were really watching out for anyone who tried to film. They really wanted to keep things quiet and private during the ceremony. Uh, People also said they were angry, but today they wanted to focus on mourning. I spoke to one woman who knows the family. She has three children herself, including a 16-year-old. She wouldn't give me a last name out of fear for her safety, but told me I could call her Madame Catherine. Mm -hmm. Here's what she had to tell me. So she's saying it's so difficult. You know, just imagine putting yourself in that mother's place. It's not easy. 
Hundreds gathered at a nearby mosque this afternoon for part of the memorial services, and so many people showed up that they couldn't accommodate everyone inside. I would say there ended up being about 200 people gathered outside for a communal prayer done in the middle of the street, and it was really quite moving to watch. It really felt like the whole town had showed up. Uh, I also spoke to people who came from elsewhere, including one man who came all the way up from Bordeaux, which is about two hours southwest of Paris. What all do we know about this teenager? And, and what did people that you talked to today tell you about him? Um, he's been identified in the media only as Nahel M. We don't know his last name, but we do know that he was of Algerian and Moroccan descent. He was brought up by a single mother. His mother, Munoz, has said they were extremely close. He was also known to police for several traffic violations, but he didn't have any criminal record. And I just want to emphasize that last point because many of the people I spoke to today said they felt like there were some who were trying to tarnish this boy's reputation and paint him as a bad kid. I spoke with one community activist, Nordine Iznasni. Here's what he had to say. So he's saying he feels like Nahel was killed twice, once with a bullet and then a second time by those who tried to smear his reputation, notably some politicians on the right and far right. Nahel was also part of a local youth rugby league, and he had a mentor who described him as someone who really fit in and just wasn't the kind of kid to get in any trouble. Yeah, And to that end, is there more clarity at this point about what happened or any new information about what happened that led up to this death? Yeah, so prosecutors have started piecing together what happened. Let me walk you through with what we know about that morning. So at, on Tuesday at around 8 a.m., two police officers on motorcycles stopped a yellow Mercedes after seeing the car speeding and running a red light. Police drew weapons as they approached the car. They claimed they pointed the guns to, quote, deter him from driving away, him being Nahel. Um, police then asked him to turn off the ignition, but the car slowly moved forward. And that's when one of the officers fired a shot and that bullet ended up hitting Nahel in the chest. The officer who fired the shot was fired and is now in detention. He's being investigated for voluntary homicide. So you said today was calm. Uh, there has not been calm any other nights. Uh, over a thousand arrests last night alone. What happens next? I think we can expect more unrest. 45,000 police have been deployed across the country. French President Emmanuel Macron has canceled an upcoming trip to Germany that was scheduled for Sunday. Um, the government is repeating calls for calm, but given it's the weekend, it's likely there will be more activity on the streets. That's reporter Rebecca Rossman in Nanterre, France. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you. If you're looking to visit Yosemite National Park in California this summer, be prepared to wait. Known for its soaring granite cliffs, its sparkling rivers and waterfalls, especially this year, and its giant sequoia trees, Yosemite is a lot more crowded than it used to be. Bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, overflowing parking lots, long wait times for restaurants, shuttles, and just about everything else. So what is going on here? To find out, we called Elizabeth Barton. She is the co-owner of Echo Adventure Cooperative in Groveland, California, just outside the park. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, Scott. It's great to be with you today. Can you paint a picture for me for what Yosemite and the area around it has been like this summer? I think unprecedented is probably the best word. Just to give you an idea, Juneteenth weekend, we saw lines stretching along Highway 120 for eight miles with wait times exceeding four hours. And then I heard, you know, visitors were getting turned away after waiting all of that time. I mean, Yosemite's always been popular. What makes this year so different? 
I think it's a culmination of a lot of different things. As the park is lifting its COVID era, like uh, reservation system, mm-hmm. we're seeing so many first time visitors. You combine that newfound enthusiasm with the fact that we are still recovering from an unprecedented winter, like left so many roads and attractions inaccessible. It's just sort of made the perfect storm. And you mentioned the reservation system. Can you explain for people who have not had their lives upended by it, what has recently changed and what that means for people trying to visit the park? So, um, you know, 2000, what, 17, 18, 19, we had on average 5 million visitors a year. And so the park, when COVID hit, decided it needed to make some changes and really reduce how many people could be packed in that closely together. So they instituted an advanced reservation system where you would have to go online, usually have to have really sophisticated (laughs) internet tools Mm -hmm. so that you could get reservations into the park in just split seconds after, after it was open. People would show up without knowing that this reservation system was in effect and they would be turned away at the gate. This has been going on for the last three years, really frustrating local businesses and hotels. And so this year they decided to stress test their new system. Unfortunately, like I said, it combined with all of those other things. And now we just have pandemonium. So there's no reservation system. People are just showing up and it seems like too many people are showing up. It feels that way, but many of our businesses have had a really hard couple of years and they are loving every minute of this. So it really is, gosh, you know, like a double-edged sword. As a whole, do you feel like this unprecedented uh, surge of, of traffic is a net positive or negative? Oh, gosh, that's such a hard question. I would say personally what I'm seeing and the impacts to visitor experience, um, the exceptional environmental impact, as well as the impact to the community and to the rangers who are sort of tasked with corralling the throngs of visitors, I'd have to say it's a negative, Mm -hmm. kind of a net negative from my perspective. Any suggestions for people? I mean, we're still early in the summer. I'm sure a lot of people listening are planning on going to Yosemite and maybe kind of nervous hearing this. Any tips for people to manage this the best way possible? Steer clear of Saturdays. Granted, we have had two three-day weekends really close together, but even last Saturday was really a sight. People walking down the roads, the main highways, kids playing tag on the shoulder. It was it was pretty crazy. So I'm just telling everybody, stay away from the weekends. When you get here during the weekdays, go in early. Like plan to be up and out of bed, fully breakfasted and in your car by like six o'clock so that you really get the full experience. You don't have to wait in line. You don't have to sit in traffic. You can just get in your parking spot and enjoy nature. All right. That was Elizabeth Barton, the co-owner of Echo Adventure Cooperative in Groveland. Thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, gosh. It's been such a privilege. Thank you so much. And if you are listening to this right now, stuck in traffic in Yosemite, I'm very sorry. In Iran, the country's supreme leader took an unusual step this week, publicly lashing out at the country's judiciary. He said people have lost faith in the institution due to corruption, both real and perceived. That's been a frequent complaint in Iran. As NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Istanbul, the statements come as a crackdown continues against people who protested the death of a young woman in police custody last year. Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei met Tuesday with judiciary officials, and his message was blunt. Malpractice and corruption were leading to instability in their institution, which he described as, quote, one of the main pillars in the establishment of the Islamic Republic. He said most Iranian judges were honorable, but not all. 
There's a small minority who abuse their position and tarnish the image of the judiciary in the eyes of the people. Khamenei made no mention of the fact that Iranian courts are not independent, but rather firmly under the control of the judiciary, whose leadership is appointed by the supreme leader himself. Critics have long argued that Iran is rife with corruption, and it's a frequent complaint among Iranians. They also say Iranian authorities are more likely to punish whistleblowers or journalists who expose corruption rather than the officials involved in the corrupt act. In his remarks, Khamenei emphasized that instability in an institution as important as the judiciary could lead to disruptions in the entire regime. And he warned against downplaying the extent of corruption or its possible effects. Corruption is contagious. If, God forbid, corruption infects some parts, it will spread, and it will get worse day by day. If it isn't treated, corruption will increase. He said similar problems exist in other parts of the government. His scathing assessment comes as the government continues to jail Iranians who took part in the nationwide protests that were sparked by the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman, Masajina Amini. She was detained by Iran's morality police for allegedly wearing her hijab, the mandatory head covering, improperly. The ensuing protests spread the length and breadth of the country. The government's brutal response left more than 500 people dead and tens of thousands detained. It's been seen as the biggest uprising against Iran's cleric-led regime since the founding of the Islamic Republic. Officials have tried to frame the protests as a provocation sponsored by foreign agents of Iran's adversaries in the West, but their arguments have failed to win backing either inside the country or internationally. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. This is NPR News. And from Boston, this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. In the forecast, we'll have hazy skies for what's left of the afternoon, and then hazy conditions continue tonight with temperatures falling into the mid-60s. Tomorrow and Monday, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, low 80s. And an air quality alert to does stay in effect in eastern Massachusetts until midnight. Well, the first big Sumner Tunnel closure is coming up in the coming week. Tips on how to get around it are at your fingertips at WBUR. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Sierra Leone, the main opposition party is demanding a rerun of last weekend's presidential election, even though the incumbent president has already been sworn into office for his second term. In Florida, a new immigration law took effect today that sets new criminal penalties for undocumented people and also those who help them. The new law makes it illegal to transport or shelter people who are undocumented, and it increases fines for businesses that hire them. And in California, the minimum wage went up in West Hollywood today to the highest level in the country at $19.08. Workers there will get another hike next summer when it's adjusted for cost of living. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine unleashed chaos across the region. Now the turmoil has come to Russia itself. And even for a leader known for crushing dissent and enforcing consensus, Putin can't hide it from his people. I think there's been incompetence and dysfunction in Ukraine. Now there we see incompetence, weakness and dysfunction at home. John Seifer once ran Russia operations for the CIA and is now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He told NPR that Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin's rebellion has left Putin with some tough choices. You know, if he lets Prigozhin go, he looks weak. You know, one minute he's calling him a scum traitor and Prigozhin shot down Russian helicopters. The next minute he's gone. But if he tries to kill Prigozhin, that's dangerous, too, because Prigozhin has shown himself to have some real populist appeal. He has this strong narrative that the Russian leaders are fat cats with yachts and children in Europe, and they're sending Russian boys to be slaughtered in Ukraine. Indeed, Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko, an ally of Putin's, claims that he talked Putin out of killing Prigozhin. Here's NPR's Charles Mains. Lukashenko says he told Putin, OK, we can kill him, no problem, but it's a bad idea. And Lukashenko said there wouldn't be any negotiations and Wagner's fighters would strike back. And even though Russia would win in the end, uh, thousands of civilians would die. While Cypher sees dysfunction in the Russian military, he also sees a danger. Vladimir Putin sees Russia as himself, and so he sees threats to himself as threats to Russia. A week on from an aborted uprising, Vladimir Putin is still standing, but for how long? Last weekend's events marked the greatest challenge to Putin's rule since he came to power 23 years ago. And on Friday, a U.S. official confirmed to NPR that a top Russian general with ties to Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, who led the brief revolt, has been detained. It's not clear if General Sergei Surovikin supported the uprising, but the ties between the general and Prigozhin go back years. We also know that these two individuals see themselves as being in the thick of the war and the struggle, and they see the elites in Moscow, you know, to be more corrupt, to be not really fighting uh, for their motherlands. And so that creates a certain potential proximity of how they view things. That's Golnaz Sharafudinova. She's the director of the Russian Institute at King's College London. My colleague Mary Louise Kelly spoke with her and started off by asking her take on how wounded Putin is. That's the very big question, right? I like to compare what happened to sort of like a glitch in the matrix. This might be for American audiences. Uh, remember that black cat and the glitch in the matrix that reveals that there is a matrix, right? And we saw that the glitch in Russia, you know, things that have been under the radar, things that have not been... Uh, shown to the population uh, in their own immediacy, that is the real conflicts that exist among the elites, all of a sudden uh, it was on display. And no wonder now the Russian uh, media system, media managers would be doing a lot to try to diminish the importance of what has happened. 
And there will be many people who might not even believe that this was a real mutiny, a real challenge to the authority, but many will believe that. And we see in terms of the laughter that's emerging, in terms of the ridiculing patterns and the anecdotes that emerge in the Russian uh, in the Russian social media, we see that people are reacting. And, you know, the very common reaction was that, oh, the emperor is naked. So from that perspective, um, the leader who has been very successful in managing conflicts and being an arbiter among different interest groups, all of a sudden didn't manage well this time. And that does uh, demonstrate uh, weakness on his part, and that does reveal um, the the reality, the, the fragility of power, the fragility of the government and their authority. And um, it cannot not hurt. No wonder that they are, will try to patch it up. What do we know of how ordinary Russians view all this? What do they make of what's happening? The very early reactions were focused on various types of conspiracies. Many people had hard time believing that Putin could be challenged in such a way, such an open way. Um, so it was very, it was a reality that was hard to confront. So various types of conspiracy theories that this was conspired by Putin himself to somehow increase or improve his hold on power were very prominent and popular, and I think they will remain. But at the same time, the other side of the story is the, I mentioned, ridicule and laughter and the social media creativity that goes on with regards to uh, bringing out various types of uh, clips from films and movies that would make fun of the situation. So it's between laughter and disbelief. And there is, of course, a wide range between that. Hmm. You know, I remember being in Russia to cover the last presidential election in 2018. And among the many people we interviewed, one young man who told me he loved Vladimir Putin. And when I asked him why, he explained it's gotten really hard to find a parking space at my apartment building. And what he meant was that under Putin, a lot more people could afford to buy a car. The quality of life had gone up. Does that hold as you look at Russia in 2023, which finds itself, as I know you have written, in an economically precarious and internationally isolated position? Yes, absolutely. The The truth about Russia's growth and the percolation of that growth down to the grassroots uh, was true up until 2013 or so, starting from 2013 and certainly after 2014 and the sanctions uh, and, and the reaction of the Russian economy to sanctions, it has been a downward trend. Uh, they tried to maintain some degree of stability, but in terms of economic growth, that's, that's not there. What the state and what the government is trying to do is to focus on government um, subsidies and social support and social benefits. So they are trying to fight poverty by addressing the families with children, etc. But we're not talking about new cars, we're not talking about new housing, we're talking about, you know, whether there is bread on the table. Uh, so do we have any insight into what President Putin is thinking, what his next move may be? Uh, we are all uh, watching out for how the consequences of will, of these events will play out. Uh, you know, people are expecting repressions. Um, you know, some of the revengeful acts might take some time, uh, uh, but this is something that we will be looking out for. And it is hard to say what exactly, uh, you know, will be decided at the moment. I think 
there is some lag in terms of digestion uh, that will happen and um, you know, soul searching within the government, within the security services and sort of looking around and then uh, taking some action. So we are all on the watch out for those. Yeah. Has he signaled in any way that this mutiny might cause him to rethink his war in Ukraine? No, that we haven't seen. What we have seen is the attempt to patch up this open sort of challenge that was revealed uh, and to patch it up with rhetoric of popular unification behind the president, uh, the army saving, you know, the government and the country. And uh, yet again, the message of the West, the evil West that's trying to fragment Russia, that is out there looking for Russia's weaknesses. So all those messages uh, to a certain extent have been there and they are being uh, used again. But at this time, you know, we see this as a band-aid that's being put on the events. One question to leave you with, and it's this. I saw one former U.S. diplomat, Elizabeth Shackelford, uh, quoted on recent events, and she said her central question now is, is Putin's biggest battle not with the West, but with his own people now? What do you think? I would say that Putin's biggest battle is on the front lines in Ukraine, and the outcomes of that battle and the perceived loss uh, or success on, in that battle will determine his relationships with both the people and the elites in Russia. That's Golnaz Sharafudinova, who teaches Russian politics and is the director of the Russia Institute at King's College London. She's also the author of the book The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity. She spoke with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly. And more news from Europe. In Germany, a far-right anti-immigrant political party has achieved a big milestone. A candidate for the Alternative for Deutschland party has won a local election and will be governing a small district in the eastern part of the country. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, this is a sign of shifting political winds in Europe's biggest democracy. The normally sleepy town of Zonneberg in the state of Thuringia was best known for its history of making toys. But last Sunday, the town made headlines for electing a far-right candidate as its head administrator. Robert Zesselman told German media his victory means the Alternative for Deutschland, or AfD, is now a major party, and not just in the state of Thuringia, but in the rest of Germany. And this is what political observers were afraid of. Basically, it was a matter of time when and where the AfD succeeds in one of these local elections. Johannes Kies is deputy director of the Elsa Frankel Brunswick Institute for Democracy Research in Leipzig. He says the AfD, a party whose popularity rose several years ago in response to an uptick in migrants from the Middle East, suffered during the years of the pandemic when Germany's government was united in fending off COVID-19. But he says now, with Berlin squabbling over Russia's war in Ukraine and how to implement climate targets, the AfD's popularity is again on the rise. A recent national survey shows the party polling neck and neck with Germany's Social Democrats, the party of Chancellor Olaf Scholz. If we allow a spot for the AfD to put their anti-establishment messages within the public debate, then they are very successful and very good, and I would say even professional, in using these kinds of windows of opportunity. The AfD party was founded a decade ago by a group of Eurosceptic academics and bankers. 
The party's branch in Thuringia, home to this week's local victory, has been classified as right-wing extremist by Germany's own intelligence services, the same agencies that have put the party under surveillance for more than two years for the threat it poses to Germany's constitution. The public portrayal of our party is a very distorted one. Kristen Brinke is chair of the AfD party in Berlin, and she's sick of her party being compared to Hitler's Nazis. To put it plainly, I distance myself categorically from what happened during the Third Reich and find the constant historical comparison a rather difficult one. Brinke says her party's victory this week signifies a normalization of the AfD's political agenda. But Lorenz Blumenthaler, an expert on Germany's right wing, says the AfD is anything but normal in a civil society. He says German media has normalized the AfD with its coverage. We know that this party is right-wing extremist. We know that this party is not interested in an open society. But nevertheless, every little step that they do to normalize their positions and to feed them up into the public discourse is covered in very extensive measure without really questioning their narratives, but just by reproducing them. He says the off day's victory this week, albeit a small one in a region of only 57,000 people, sends a dark message. A lot of people, especially the radicalized right-wing extremists, feel empowered through this. And I think that's something that we will see the more government seats the AfD is able to win over, that just ordinary right-wing hate crime will increase. A survey released this week by the Elise Franke Brunswick Institute showed more than half of voters in East Germany feel their country needs a strong party in charge. A third of voters in the same survey agreed with the statement, Germans are naturally superior to other peoples. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Back in the 1960s, there was a heaping surplus of mail in the U.S., and post offices were struggling to keep up with deliveries. According to the Smithsonian's National Postal Museum, mail volume reached 63.7 billion pieces in 1960. The post office stands to be swamped, overwhelmed, drowned in a sea of mail. Where do we go from here? There was a simple solution, a new concept called the Zone Improvement Plan Code. You know it as the zip code. It was introduced on July 1st, 1963, 60 years ago today. NPR's Jessica Green has the story. 
The Post Office Department, a forerunner for the U.S. Postal Service, had a saying in 1963, mail moves the country, zip code moves the mail. With the help of new sorting machines, the five-digit zip codes pinpointed locations of addresses across the country and made mail sorting a whole lot faster. Nancy Pope was head curator of the Smithsonian's National Postal Museum. She spoke to NPR in 2013. It was really amazing because you had before people who were hand sorting. And hand sorting, even if you're really good at it, you're not going to do more than 60 letters a minute. But when they had the machine and could use the machine, they ended up sorting at uh, 1,700 letters per minute. It was a brave new world in mail delivery. But Pope says memorizing a bunch of numbers was a tough sell to the American public back in the 60s. ATT had just been... uh, rolling out area codes for people to use. And AT&T told the post office department, you're going to need a lot of help because people hate area codes. And so here you have people who were feeling like they're being turned into numbers. But in the 60s, it was kind of scary for the American public. So the post office department appointed a zip code spokesperson, someone who promoted zip codes in newspapers, magazines, and on TV and radio ads. He was a crudely drawn cartoon mailman, dressed in blue with big eyes and a wide smile, who went by the name Mr. Zip. This is Mr. Zip. He revolutionized the mail delivery system of the United States with his zip code. The post office department even produced this film featuring a song about zip codes. Today, Zip codes mean more than efficiency with postal delivery. Zip codes are used to predict voting habits, access to health care, and life expectancy. They also represent economic disparities and racial discrimination. Initially, credit scoring was very closely tied to discrimination because they used variables such as zip code. This is Josh Lauer, an author and associate professor at the University of New Hampshire. He spoke to NPR's Throughline in May. And zip code, of course, can be used as a proxy for race. So just having a variable like zip code in a credit score or a credit scoring algorithm could reproduce these kinds of discrimination. When the IRS said, we don't know your race, it was never the truth. Dorothy A. Brown is a professor of law at Georgetown and a tax expert. She spoke to NPR's Code Switch in April. You know what the IRS knows? Your name and your zip code. You give me a zip code, I can tell you what the race of the person whose tax return I'm looking at is. There are over 41,000 zip codes across the U.S. Those numbers reflect the values of the people occupying them, and in some cases represent social standing. What began as a mail sorting tool has become a thread that connects us and defines who we are. This is NPR News. It just Elba's new series starts with a simple premise. A guy gets on a plane. He's on that plane because he has to go home to his wife. I don't want to spoil it, but his wife is practically on to the next. And he wants to try and fix that. He's going to have to fix a lot more than that. The Idris Elba on his show Hijack, Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. 
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, the Moth Radio Hour. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 23rd at The Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. 76 degrees now, hazy overnight, mid-60s. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. U.S. officials say the head of the CIA, William Burns, traveled to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv for talks with President Volodymyr Zelensky on Ukraine's current offensive against Russian forces. That was launched nearly a month ago. In Serbia, thousands protested outside a pro-government TV station in the capital today that they say promotes a culture of violence. They want it stripped of its broadcasting license after two mass shootings in May that stunned the country. Serbia's populist authorities rejected any responsibility for the those attacks. And musician Morgan Wallen has topped the Billboard album charts for the past three and a half months. That's the longest since Adele, more than a decade ago. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station, And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Big brands have become the most visible battlefields in America's culture wars. During this year's Pride Month, which ended yesterday, boycotts and protests focus on Target, Bud Light, Starbucks, and even the Los Angeles Dodgers over LGBTQ support. NPR's Alina Selyuk reports. First thing to specify is that not all companies are brands. Your local grocery store just wants to sell you some snacks. But a brand wants to connect with you on a deep level. You know, my razor sharper, my toothpaste has 25% more fluoride. It's not terribly evocative. Marcus Collins is a marketing expert at the University of Michigan. But if my brand of ice cream tells me that we should dismantle white supremacy, you go, whoa, Nelly. That's a powerful thing. He says the strongest brands want to become part of your identity. Think Apple or Tesla, because this way you might not only buy their stuff, but evangelize for it. Add into the mix social media in a very divided society. We go to greater lengths to signal who we are and who we are not. And when we disagree, we want to distance ourselves dramatically. People boycotted Spotify over disinformation on podcasts. Goya over the CEO's praise of Donald Trump. They burned Nike shoes for supporting Colin Kaepernick, kneeling for the anthem. Now people are calling in bomb threats to Target stores and Bud Light factories. Boardrooms are reconsidering the risks of LGBTQ messaging. You know, it was convenient to put a rainbow in in June because the chances of you getting backlash is low. 
Today, conservatives are raising the stakes. Ron DeSantis and other Republican presidential candidates are even campaigning on a traditionalist view that companies should stick to the basics, make stuff, sell stuff, and stay out of, quote, woke issues like transgender rights or climate change. Rutgers University law professor Carlos Ball argues this underplays the power of corporate America. I think it's a mistake to view them only as the providers of goods and services, period. They have always been, and they will always be much more than that. Big companies set employment standards and cultural trends. They lobby lawmakers and fund advocacy groups. Corporations were long ahead of courts on LGBTQ workplace rights, for example. And these days, companies face lots of pressure to take a stand. Younger people tell surveys they want to know the values of their brands. Shareholders are starting to push for it, too. There is a belief that you have to pick one side or the other. Kimberly A. Whitler is a longtime marketing executive now at the University of Virginia. But what we're seeing is that that's damaging brands. Boycotts of brands often have little economic impact long-term. People forget and move on. But Whitler says research suggests staking positions on divisive issues can hurt brand reputation. And wanting to take a stand creates a particular conundrum for brands built around mass appeal, which worry about alienating chunks of their audience. Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, these brands were birthed liberal, and it's absolutely fine for them to be liberal. What's challenging is when a company is birthed mass, and then they want to start shifting. Can a big mass brand reach all sides of the ideological spectrum and how? To Whitler, that's the biggest question now. Collins at the University of Michigan argues both sideism is a big reason why the fallout has been so huge for Target and especially Bud Light. The two had spent years supporting the LGBTQ community, but under attack, they flinched, he says. Target pulled pride-themed clothes, and Bud Light even issued a meandering apology. And not only did they lose the people that they originally pissed off or offended, but then they lost the people they had been supporting for years. All to play to this, this mythological middle. People who are so uninvested, they might choose a different beer just to stay out of the whole thing. I asked him, can a brand appeal to everyone? Everyone? I think that's a myth. There's no such thing as everyone. Though plenty of brands will keep trying, fumbling their way to being both evocative and popular at the same time. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. The extra-long July 4th holiday weekend is here, and people are making plans. Willie's hosting a 4th of July party, and we're learning techniques because he's going to host another hot dog eating contest at his house. We're going to have all of us do a hot dog. I, I, I had my tonsils out last September, so there's a lot more space to, in terms of just, like, airway ability. We met Willie Thier in downtown Washington, D.C. last week, gathered at the foot of a big outdoor stage, waiting for a much more serious hot dog eating contest to begin. The final qualifying event for the Super Bowl, Olympics, and World Cup of competitive eating all wrapped up in one bun. You probably know it, the annual July 4th contest at Nathan's at New York's Coney Island. The one Joey Chestnut has won year after year after year. Joey hits the 50 mark, still a magic number, even though he blows by it every year. That's still a significant number. In just a few minutes, nine people would take the stage to gorge on as many hot dogs as they could fit in their mouths. The top finishers would punch a ticket to the big event at Nathan's on Tuesday. Deer is excited. His friend Becca Harris, not quite as pumped. I was just warned to stay out of a splash zone, so I'm backing up a little bit because I am I am very apprehensive about 
how this is going to go down. Harris has the same question as so many others yeah. in the crowd. Why do Americans do this? I mean, God only knows, right? God only knows. I feel like it's it's some kind of like inaugural part of their culture at this point, like hot dogs, so. Producer Alejandra Marcus Hanse and I walk around to the back of the stage where staffers are stacking up plates with five hot dogs apiece. Do you think one of us could stand like right in the in the wings or something to record the actual contest? As long as there's not a medical emergency. If there's a medical emergency, we'll need you to move right away because the EMTs that'll be here will need to get up on the stage. Fair. It's almost game time. Master of Ceremonies George Shea, the co-founder of Major League Eating, bounds onto the stage. He's dressed like the monorail salesman from The Simpsons, and he's ready to pump up the crowd. It's time to begin. Okay, we are underway. Uh, everybody is standing up. Uh, several people are dipping the hot dogs in water, eating the hot dogs, and then eating the buns after the fact. Okay, the guy in the middle is, wow. He's ripping the hot dogs in two, stuffing a half of a hot dog in each mound. Looks like he's stuffing the bun in after that, kind of jerking up and down as he does it. Early on, it is clear who's going to win. The six foot nine Gideon Oji, who's standing in the middle of the stage, demolishing three hot dogs at a time. OG has eaten 20 hot dogs with a little more than five minutes left. He's finishing up that last clump of hot dogs. He's got his fist full of it looks like two hot dogs and buns at this point. He is dunking either end into the cup of water in front of him. Taking a little pause there to shimmy his shoulders, maybe get loose for the next round of hot dogs. Taking a sip of water, still chewing. Those buns are tricky. Those buns are tricky. In the final minutes, his pace starts to slow, but still. Five seconds. Four, three, two, one. OG's final total is 35. He's going back to the big dance at Nathan's for the eighth time, but he's not satisfied. I was shooting for 40 today. I was a little bit winded, so, you know, I just, it wasn't really nobody chasing me, so, you know, I just uh, took it easy. OG is 31 and originally from Nigeria. I came to America in 2008. That's around the time that Joey ate about 65 hot dogs. And I was like, I said, I could do that. That's Joey Chestnut, one of the greatest of all time at this contest. OG has really embraced this. He's even won a kale eating contest. I played college basketball at the highest level. You know, this is by far the most challenging thing just because you're fighting against your, your body. Be like, stop doing that to me, you know? So, but you have to keep going for the competition. That's what drives me, you know? So it's very, very challenging, very spiritual for me. That's why OG does it, but why is this such a broader thing? Why specifically do Americans do this? And why has competitive eating become so synonymous with the holiday celebrating American independence? To try to answer that question, producer Matt Ozug spoke to some experts who have gone deep on the subject. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I remember that I spent two years in the 2000s following competitive eating around the country and the world. You know, I saw some things that I can never forget, even if I wanted to. My name is Jason Fagoni, and I'm the author of Horsemen of the Esophagus, Competitive Eating, and the Big Fat American Dream. Most people are, are familiar with the Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest. That's the one that's broadcast every year on ESPN. But there's all kinds of other eating contests for burgers, 
for uh, cakes, for cannolis, three cannoli during last year's face-off, French fries. French fry eating championship of the world! Just the craziest kind of wildest, most grotesque, nonsensical, you know, and kind of fun pageants that I'd ever had a chance to witness. One of the most intense experiences of my life was attending the Philadelphia Wing Bowl, the country's premier chicken wing eating contest. 15 to 20,000 actual fans packed into a sports arena in Philadelphia at 7 a.m. Then there's this whole other aspect of eating contests in Japan. They come with greatly expanded production values. There are, you know, lasers and explosions and, uh, you know, dramatic music. There's a lot more ingenuity in the kind of the structuring of the contest itself, whereas in America, the contests tend to be more just about sort of sheer volume. Competitive eating goes back centuries. It's not only an American thing. We have record of a famous competitive eater going back to the 17th century. My name is Eric Grunthauser, and I am a writer and journalist. There was a farmer by the name of Nicholas Wood. Some of the impressive meals that Wood was known to have consumed included eating seven dozen rabbits in one sitting, entire pigs, 12 loaves of bread that had been soaked in ale. He passed out afterwards, but he made it. Wood earned a number of pretty incredible nicknames, the most exorbitant paunchmonger, Duke Allpaunch, and the Kentish Tenterbelly. Unfortunately, his body was pretty well destroyed from all the eating. He had lost all but one of his teeth after trying to eat an entire mutton shoulder. Wood finally threw in the towel and said, I can't do this any longer. There are a lot of different cultures that have kind of invented eating contests independently at different points in history. And for the first few hundred years after the American Revolution, eating contests were a regular feature at Fourth of July celebrations. And then this started to change a little in the 1970s. Uh, when Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs created a hot dog contest on the 4th of July. You know, the eaters in that era were, were mostly big guys from Long Island, right? These are like classic kings of the backyard barbecue. And in the 1990s, these two brothers from New York uh, took over the Nathan's Famous accounts, George and Richard Shea. And in that age, everyone who was competing in the contest was kind of in on the joke. The eaters had silly nicknames. There was a guy named uh, Frank Large Della Rosa. Dominic the Doganator Cardo. Ed Cookie Jarvis. Uncle Charles Hardy, Brooklyn, New York. Eric Badlands Booker. Who is also a rapper and records competitive eating themed rap songs. I have a CD somewhere in, in, in my box of recording material. And then in 2001, everything changed in an instant when this young Japanese guy named Takeru Kobayashi came to America and competed in the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest. Kobayashi was different from everyone who had come before him. You know, he wasn't a big man, he looked very healthy. 
he didn't have any kind of a jokey nickname, right? And it turned out that he had been training for the contest as if it were a real sport. Part of Kobayashi's innovation was that he came up with a completely new way to eat the hot dogs. He separated the hot dog from the bun, and then he snapped the hot dogs in half. And then he would snap the bun in half, dunk the bun in water, and eat it. This was an innovation akin to, you know, the Fosbury flop in the high jump. And the record at that point was 25 hot dogs in 12 minutes, which everybody thought was an enormous quantity. The contest starts, everything is going like normal. And then about three minutes in, everything kind of stops. And not only the other contestants, but the announcer, they just start looking at Kobayashi with kind of their jaws open. Kobayashi had almost broken the world record and there was still nine minutes left to go. Kid is incredible. Total beating of the Americans. He, he was like a conveyor belt. He was just putting them in two at a time. And then he proceeded to double the world record by the end of the 12 minutes. Started waving the white flag. I can't believe it, the new record, 50. And then after that, everything changed because there started to be real money. Pretty soon, you know, ESPN was broadcasting the hot dog contest live. What a crowd out here. Americans of all striped their visitors from abroad, celebrating the dream of independence once again on the corner of Surf and Stillwell. And with that money came a whole new wave of competitors who, you know, like Kobayashi, were training. They were taking it seriously as a sport, and they weren't necessarily in on the joke anymore. They were really trying to win. Eating is one of the great psychic preoccupations of our species. It's right up there with sex and death. I mean, eating is this animal act that we all participate in to some degree, and this is the most animal version of it, but it's happening in an environment where there are, there are safety rules. Uh, so in a sense, there, it's like this display of gluttony that has been kind of made safe for you to look at and think about. There's like this pane of safety glass between you and the danger. If you sort of zoom out and you think about, you know, what an eating contest symbolizes more broadly, maybe, it does seem symbolic of the outsized American appetite for everything, and not just for food, but for resources, power, money.